0: Well, good morning, mainstream. It is good to see all of you here again, and I am very eager to open up the Word of God with you here today. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, and that is where we're going to be spending our time together back to the Beatitudes here this morning. Beatitude number 7, I believe, is before us, uh, and it is. Wonderful to know and to see the reality that as a body of Christ, we are here to serve one another. I know, again, a number of you have had to leave your homes this week, uh, having been evacuated because of the fires, and it truly is amazing to see the way that the body of Christ does come around one another in times like this to serve each other. Um, I was reminded of that actually a couple years ago when I had to evacuate, and I had one of 200 people that I could call to say, hey, I need a place to crash. Can I come stay with you? And my neighbors across the street, when we asked them, everybody's in the, out in the cul-de-sac packing up their cars. And we said, where are you guys going to go? And they said, well, we're going to go to the parking lot up in Lowe's uh, because we don't know anybody. We don't have any place to go. And it was amazing to be able to invite those people who had no place to go because they didn't have any family, friends, or church uh, around them to say, why don't you come with us? And those people were just blown away. Um, that someone would just open up their home not only to friends but to them as strangers as they came with us as we were being evacuated. And I know that in many cases that same scenario is being played out over and over again here this week. And uh, it's just amazing to see the love of Christ that's on display amongst all of you as you seek to care for one another and serve each other and the testimony that that is to a watching world around us. So thank you to those of you who are serving one another this week, and we will continue to be in prayer for those of you whose homes have been threatened. Today is Veterans Day. November 11th is Veterans Day, and it's a day when we are able to honor The 42 million men and women who throughout the course of our nation's history have served in some form or fashion in our armed forces. These are men and women who have gone before us and sacrificed much in many cases, having sacrificed their lives in defending our nation and bringing us peace. Originally today, Veterans Day, was known as Armistice Armistice Day and it was originally celebrated in the wake of World War I when on this very day, November 11th, the guns finally fell silent. This past week, I was reading a news article where a team of highly qualified uh, researchers went back and actually reconstructed uh, acoustically the moment that the guns fell silent in the nation. I believe it was France uh, that the recording was taken from. Back during World War I, as the news article explained, uh, there was a brand new technology that the Allies were using at that time called acoustical location, where they could actually record sound waves, which was a big deal for them at that time, and be able to record the sign, sound waves and based upon those sound waves, get a general sense of where the enemy were firing their artillery from. And there's actually a recording of those sound waves, the moment at 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month of the year, uh, when, that, when that, uh, that gunfire actually ceased and peace reigned over the battlefield and you could actually go back and listen to that moment where as all these explosions are happening artillery firing and all these things where they've reconstructed it based upon the sound waves all of a sudden everything just stops and for the first time in years there was quiet there was peace And on the audio recording, just to make it dramatic, they inserted the chirping of some birds in the interim quiet. And you thought to yourself, but that would have been so very stark for those soldiers who had been there in those trenches, millions upon millions of people having lost their lives in that conflict as the modernization of weaponry met up with the mortality of man, a shocking level of carnage that had never before been seen by humanity. And yet, in that moment where that recording was made, peace arrived to those people. And yet, that peace was not a lasting peace because true peace isn't just the absence of conflict, it's the realization of reconciliation. And in our world today, the world that we live in, we tend to look at the concept of peace and we just want the guns to fall silent and to stop firing. And yet being biblically defined, that is not the definition of what peace actually is. Peace is not the moment that the guns stop firing. Peace is the moment when reconciliation actually takes place. And I think we're all well aware that we live in a world where peace isn't actually fully possible, either spiritually or physically. Jeremiah 6.14 says it this way, the people cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And instead, as Romans 3 tells us, and I'll just read this passage of Scripture, it it really describes the nature of the human experience. It says this, "'There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips.'" whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a biblical understanding of the world as it stands around us. It's a world that is absolutely and utterly without peace. And yet it's into that fallen, torn-up world that Jesus tells us here in Matthew 5, 9, he is going to parachute his disciples. And like paratroopers on D-Day, he he sends them down back behind enemy lines. And essentially what we see happening here in these final three Beatitudes, we've been looking through the Beatitudes together, and now we get down here to the final three, what we see here is, is that these Beatitudes are all about a faith that has gone public, a faith that is taken from uh, the internal faith of what's happening inside your spirit, inside your heart, with your relationship to God. And it's, it's faith that's now lived out in the public arena. And the very first statement that's given to us here is found in verse 9, where Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, we have to back up just a little bit here before we jump into that statement and really unpack everything that it means and just set the context a little bit. You see, we understand very clearly that we've all been given a new identity in Christ that results in certain kinds of specific behavior. And I think the first six Beatitudes, just to set the context and review, the first six Beatitudes have made this point very, very clearly for us, have they not? right? We've gone back and we've looked at all of these things. The reality of your relationship to God is seen in the first three Beatitudes, where we're told that to have a relationship with God, you must be poor in spirit and recognize that you are nothing before him. You must mourn over your sinfulness, and you must then live in light of who you know him to be and who you now know yourself to be, with a spirit of meekness. That's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. These are all statements that relate to the nature of your understanding of your relationship to God. Then he goes on and he says, if you have that new identity, if you have that relationship, there will be certain internal characteristics that are produced by that relationship. And that was seen in the next set of three Beatitudes, where he says, If you have a relationship with God, then you will be one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, verse six. You will be one who will demonstrate a heart of mercy, verse seven. You will be one who will have, you'll you'll be one who is pure in heart, verse eight. You see, the reality of relationship results in a specific kind of heart being developed. And yet once that heart has been developed and it begins to live itself out, the faith that so far in this passage is very internal, all of a sudden becomes very external in the nature of your behavior to the world around you who is watching. So the question that's asked in these last three Beatitudes is very simple. What happens when you take your ID card Of being a disciple of Jesus Christ out into the world. When you start flashing your badge as a Christian, one who understands that he has a relationship with God the Father, one that seeks to live in a way that is pure and merciful and righteous, when you start to actually live that way and you take all of that out into the world, how is that going to be received? These last three Beatitudes hit the public really clearly and. The final set indicates how the public is going to respond to your new identity, and there's a cost associated with it. We're told in verse 9 that we will seek to make peace, but the world is going to reject us. In verse 10, we're told that we will seek to survive persecution, and the world is going to continue to oppose us. In verses 11 and 12, we're told that we will seek to have confidence in the face of the world's wickedness and the world will not change. They will continue to abuse us. You see, we've been all given a tremendous privilege to be adopted into the family of God, but with that privilege comes a responsibility as well, and with the responsibility comes a cost. Because when you take your faith and live it out in public, there is a cost for that. And God says, here's the cost, but there's also a benefit And then there is a resulting responsibility that you must take in the face of that opposition and difficulty. And that's really what we're going to be looking at here today. The key question of this final section of Beatitudes is very simply this. Is the cost of being a disciple worth the benefit? And Jesus' answer in every single one of these Beatitudes is yes because when the world rejects your attempts to make peace, God accepts you. When the world opposes you, God preserves you. And when the world abuses you, God rewards you. You see, the cost is worth it because of the benefit that comes. And it's then left to us to fulfill our responsibility, despite the opposition that we will face. So let's just take each one of these things at a time. Since the benefit of being a disciple is greater than the cost, what is the responsibility of us as we seek to live out our faith in the public eye? Well, first, we're told here, and we're just going to get to this one, I think, here today, in verse 9, that we are responsible to be peacemakers to be those who produce peace, to be those who bring about a message of peace. And we're going to look here at three aspects of peacemaking that we must understand. The first aspect that we see here in verse 9 is very simple, and it's this. Peacemaking assumes the rejection of the world, right? Now, the verse doesn't specifically say that you will be rejected by the world, but the very statement that we need to go out into the world and be peacemakers assumes what? Obviously, that there will be rejection, there will be conflict. Otherwise, if there was no conflict, there would be no need for peacemaking. That's a rather obvious reality that lurks, lurks behind this verse and must be comprehended in order to rightly understand it. And the content of the next two Beatitudes that talk about the world's persecution, the world's reviling, confirm that this rejection is very real see, the idea of peacemaking, it assumes conflict, it assumes rejection. The, the command to be a peacemaker presupposes the presence of a conflict. Peacemakers don't get deployed to a region that doesn't have any conflict, right? And Jesus is saying, you are to be a peacemaker, thereby presupposing that there will be a certain rejection. Now, this word peacemaker here, this is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. It's not a word that means to keep the peace. It's a word that means to make the peace. And there's a difference, right? There's a big difference. There's a difference between a UN peacekeeper who walks around making suggestions to play nice and a peacemaker, a diplomat who goes in and actually seeks to forge peace. One is much, much harder than the other. It requires the overcoming of evil with that which is good in order to make and forge peace. And we're told here that we are to be people who are peace makers, Those who deliver the idea and the presence, a state of peace. That is who we are to be. We're to be literally those who work for peace. If you break that word down in the original language, it's, it's those who work for peace. It implies a forceful rejection that requires peace to be made. And, and right away we begin to understand here in this concept that this is not going to be easy. Because when the world turns on you and hates you for who you are, We're told here that we are responsible to turn towards them with arms fully extended for the purpose of producing peace with them. We ask ourselves the question, why is this necessary? Why do they not like us so deeply? Well, it's important to remember that the source of their conflict with you isn't because of you. It might feel personal, and it might even be directed at you personally, but fundamentally, you are not the problem. The reason for their conflict with you is aimed ultimately at God. And since you are his representative upon this earth, then it becomes aimed at you. But in reality, they're shooting at him. And this is the heart of Jesus' warning here. He's saying, once they find out who you are as someone who mourns your sin, someone who is poor in spirit, someone who prioritizes a lifestyle of righteousness, mercy, and purity, once they figure out all that and you take that faith public, they are going to reject you. And it is going to be necessary for you to seek to make peace with them. Apart from the Spirit of God at work and sparking their interest in himself, they have no reason to respect you. They only have interest in silencing you. Your very presence, your testimony, your statement of faith, it creates a conflict in their conscience. And they will reject you. John 15, 18 says it this way. If the world hates you, you could really translate that as when the world hates you, You know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That was Jesus' explanation of this idea. And as we're told here in this text, Jesus explains to us that the true disciple is to be one who acknowledges the rejection of the world but then turns around and counterintuitively seeks to make peace by delivering a message of gospel reconciliation, knowing full well that the result will most likely be their continued rejection. This is not an easy statement to grapple with and to fully understand. And that was really driven home for me yesterday as I was sitting in my kitchen thinking through this message here today out of the blue. I hadn't talked to my daughter about what I was preaching about at all. Out of the blue she comes up to me and she says to me, Dad? I said yes. And she says, are we supposed to love the bad guys? And I thought to myself, well what what do you mean by that? I I said "We're, we're to love all men. Jesus says even love our enemies. And She says, well, you keep a bat under your bed. If the bad guys come into the house, are you going to love them or are you going to hit them with the bat? And I thought to myself, I don't even know how to answer this right now. I said, well, honey, look, there are bad people in the world and we're responsible to love all people and seek to, and I'm thinking through my sermons all up in my head, seek to make peace with them. But if someone comes in here, I'm not going to let them hurt you. And she said, okay, good. So you'll hold them and I'll hit them. (laughs) Talk about the horns of a dilemma. But that is, that is the conflict that is resident for the believer, right? Right? We live in a world that is hostile and antagonistic towards us, and yet we're told that we're to love these people, love them enough to make peace with them, to make peace with a world that only desires conflict, where they would rather fight with you than listen to you. And that's hard. I mean, why should I seek a peace with a world that only wants to war against my beliefs? Why should I persevere before their continual rejection? And the answer is very clear here in this passage. Because your ability to overcome their rejection by seeking to make peace with them is a sign that you have not succumbed to becoming like them. And that is the mark of a true disciple. James 4.4 4 says it very clearly. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To accept the world is to reject God. To, re- to be rejected by the world is to be accepted by God. You see, the cost of being a believer, it is the world's rejection. And that is why we must be peacemakers. Because when we seek to make peace, we are evidencing the fact that we are not like them. We are bringing something very, very different to them. And that is the reason why Jesus goes on and says there will be a cost inherent in the nature of needing to be a peacemaker. But here's the benefit. Here's the blessing. If we're doing a cost-benefit analysis here, the cost is that they will reject you. But the benefit is that God is going to accept you. He says in the back half of verse 9, for they shall be called the sons of God. Those who demonstrate their discipleship and the reality of their new life in Christ, the reality that they prioritize purity, mercy, and all these things that Jesus has been talking about, the benefit of that is is that he then looks at you and calls you his own child. And this is the second reality of peacemaking that we must understand together. Peacemaking depends upon the acceptance of God. It assumes the rejection of the world and it depends upon the acceptance of God. The very next statement in the verse demonstrates in beautiful detail the glory of this reconciliation. It says, "For It's very definitive for they shall be called right there's a there's a certain dependency and relationship there that exists between this concept of being a peacemaker and being called the sons of god and there is no lack of certainty as to what's going to happen it is completely dependent upon him and he will most certainly do it for they shall be called directly connected now let's let's just unpack that for a minute What does peacemaking have to do with being called a child of God? Because at first glance, you read this verse and you're saying, I don't see the connection between part A and part B. Why is it all of a sudden that he says you'll be called a child of God if you do this action of peacemaking? What what is the connection there between these two ideas? He says, when you're a peacemaker, then he calls you his child. What's happening? Well, short story... God is providing you with a living, breathing picture of what it means to make peace. Because the very reality that he is able to call you his son is evidence, it's the greatest possible evidence of what peacemaking is. You see, the template for your peacemaking, we're told here, is the relationship that God now has with you. The very fact that he is reconciled to you, that's the model for how you are to make peace with others. Because now, you who once were alienated, you who once were far off, are now a son of God. That's the ultimate example of peace having been made. And he's saying, when you then seek to make peace with others, you are acting like me. And I recognize you as being one of my children. That's what he's saying here. You see, you cannot be a peacemaker until you first found peace with God. John 14, 27, Jesus says it very clearly. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I don't give it to you as the world gives it to you. You see, if there's a cost in being rejected by the world and us needing to make peace with them, here is the benefit. When you exert yourself to make peace with those who are around you, you are following the model that God enacted by acting in a way that is commensurate with the nature of your father. And the result is that your father now acknowledges you as being one of his children. The benefit of discipleship is that despite the world's gift of rejection, God looks upon you as his child because you've undertaken the same kind of work that he undertakes. And his response is to call you one of his own. It's to essentially acknowledge that you, in your peacemaking, bear a family resemblance to him and his peacemaking. The imagery that's going on here in this text is essentially like a, like a proud father who looks upon a son who has done an extraordinary thing and says, that's my boy. That's what's happening here. Now, all of us who have kids, and I know there may be some of us here, some of the college folks that don't have kids yet, so you might not be able to relate to this, but don't we all remember the moment when our child had been born and that very first visitor came into the hospital, right? Yeah, I see some nodding heads over there, the college guys saying, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't craft the illustration with you guys in mind, but you you can get the point, okay, where... The child is born into the hospital, and the very first visitor comes, one of what will most likely be many visitors who come and keep you awake till all hours of the night. But that first visitor comes, and maybe it's an hour or two after the baby has been born, and you hold up that child, and you say, This is my kid. Let me introduce her to you and you're prouder than you've been at any moment in your life because this is your child and they share your DNA. And the typical response in the hospital from the visitor is to usually say something like, oh, they look just like you. (laughs) And I always think to myself, no, they don't. They look like Winston Churchill. (laughs) But they grow up. And they do take on family resemblance, right? Where they do look just like you. They do act just like you because they share your DNA. And there's this sense of pride where you're able to say, that's my kid. I share something, some kind of connection with them. I am the father. They are the son. And there is a natural connection that exists there because we, we share the same kind of attributes. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they look like God. They will be called His sons. The the family resemblance between you and Him will be acknowledged if you behave this way. See, we can't fully understand the importance of our efforts to make peace until we fully understand the significance of God's work in making peace with us. And since it was the work of God in making peace with us that enables us to be part of His family we need to more fully understand what God's peace working looks like. Now, this is a huge topic. Uh, It's mentioned over 400 times directly in the Bible and many, many, many more times indirectly. So we have to just set some parameters here for ourselves and give a brief sketch biblically of what God's peace making looks like so that we can understand more fully what we're supposed to look like as one of His children. So, so let's just look at a couple different texts here together, and I'll read some for you. That way you don't have to flip from here to two in your Bibles. Okay? Uh, but clearly, this is an important theme, and it, and it goes way beyond our understanding of peace. You can just write some of these references down. Philippians 4.7 says that the peace of God is capable of guarding both our hearts and minds, and it goes beyond our full understanding. You say, well, why does this idea of peace go beyond our understanding? I can understand a lot of spiritual concepts. Why is this idea of peace bigger than I can fully comprehend? Well, the reason is that peace isn't just the absence of conflict. We go back to our original definition. It's because peace is the presence of righteousness and reconciliation, which are concepts that we can never fully begin to comprehend. You see, having peace with God doesn't just mean that He's no longer at war with us. It means that He now loves and accepts us as His own. 2 Corinthians 5.20 clearly explains it. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And here it is. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's peace. And it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend it. Paul goes on and he explains how that peace was accomplished in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, here's how God made you acceptable. He made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And the result is now not just the absence of conflict, it is the presence of reconciliation with a God who was once far off. And if you go back to the very beginning of time, you see the heart of the curse is that there is no more what? Peace. Sin is the direct enemy of peace. There is from that time till now no more peace upon this earth with one another or with God. And and since the fall, mankind has been at war with God. Every individual born from the womb with a fist raised towards heaven and a heart that screams, I will not bow to you. And that's the glory of Christ, is it not? Isaiah 9.6, a child will be born to us and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and, there it is, Prince of Peace. This is what he brings. Luke 2.14, what was the message of the angels? I know because my daughter has this part in the school play. I've heard it a thousand times this week. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among men with whom he is now pleased. This is not just a Christmas carol. It's a shocking announcement that shatters a world at war with God. Romans 5.1 gives us the theological ramifications. Therefore, having been justified by faith, he's saying having been reconciled to righteousness by faith, we have what? peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day that righteousness won its, its victory over wickedness through the person of Christ, peace was the reward that resulted. And here's the implication for all of us who believe, Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our... what? peace. You see, you've already been accepted by God. Peace has been made with him. And where the world rejects you, thereby requiring you to make peace with them, don't ever forget that God has already accepted you based upon the peace that he brought to you in the person of Christ. The disciple's obligation to make peace, it assumes the world, world's rejection. It depends upon God's acceptance, and and that really is the cost and the benefit. They will reject you, but He will accept you. So going back to the responsibility that comes with the privilege. With great privilege comes responsibility. With the responsibility comes the cost. Again, we're going back to drive to the question, is it worth it? So what's the responsibility? What's the requirement? What are we to do in light of this cost and and this benefit? Well, this brings us to aspect number three. Peacemaking requires the disciples' attention. It requires our attention. We must now be peacemakers. Understanding the cost, understanding the benefit, we come back to the command to be peacemakers. When the world rejects us because of who we are, but God accepts us because of who Christ is, how are we supposed to then act? Well, Psalm 34.14 tells us, Seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because that's the family business. There's two questions we have to ask here as to how to do this and what it looks like. The first one is, What does a peacemaker look like? That's the first question we should ask here as we seek to place our attention upon becoming peacemakers. What does it look like? In short, the peacemaker understands what they've been given And they then seek to give that same thing to other people as well. Seek peace, pursue it. Those who offer peace, who work at forging it, they clearly belong to God because they are demonstrating character that looks like Him. If you're wondering, what does it mean for me to be a peacemaker? Look at what God has done for you and then you have the answer. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. You see, the emphasis here is on the reflection of someone's character. Do you look like your father? And in in the ancient world, when we're told here that peacemakers are called the sons of God, there really were two different words in that world to describe children. One of them talks about the status of someone being a child. The other one refers to the dignity that comes to belonging to a particular family. I think you can guess which one of those two words is used here. It's not just saying you are a child. It's saying you have a dignified position as being a member of God's family. So reflect the way he looks. There's an acknowledgement that comes when you reflect the character of your father. There's a dignity that comes with that, where you're supposed to look like him and to model the good things that he is. And I remember this being driven home extremely clearly for me when I was a kid, probably 12 years old. My dad took me to Pennsylvania. I grew up in Michigan, but he took me on a trip to Pennsylvania for a big family reunion. And one afternoon, he said, hey, come with me. We're going to go on a bit of an adventure. And I said, okay. And he proceeded to take me to a graveyard, which I thought to myself, this is extraordinarily weird (laughs) as we're walking through this graveyard. Now, Something a bit of trivia that all of you might not know about me is that I'm actually Richard Gregory VI. There are six of us in a line going all the way back to like 1730 or something. It's very weird. It's more weird that I don't have any sons yet. Apparently the Lord wanted to end this streak. (laughs) My family is not happy about that. But, as we were walking through the graveyard and discovering tombstones that had the name Richard Gregory written on them, it was a very sobering experience for a 12 year old kid i mean you 're coming like face to face with the reality of mortality that every, every dude who 's had your name is in the ground. <laughs> and we finally got to the tombstone we saw a hit my father 's great great grandfather my, my father 's great grandfather and my father's grandfather. And when we got to my father's grandfather, which would be my great-grandfather, he stopped. And he said, I need to give you the same speech that my father gave to me here in this very same place. You see, my father, his father, and his father's father have all sought to honor the name of Christ in the way that we lived on this earth. So don't bring dishonor to their names or to Christ's name. Because we have sought to make sure that the name Richard Gregory means something for the sake of Christ. Whoa. Right? I mean, that was a serious moment as a kid. I mean, that made a a serious mark upon me. Where I was being told that, look, there is a certain dignity that comes in upholding the testimony of faithful men who have gone before you. So act in a way that is consistent with the character of your father. My father, you see, he wasn't a perfect man. Neither was his father. But our heavenly father is. And we share, we're told here, his DNA. We're supposed to look like him and to uphold to the watching world the dignity of what it means to be not just a particular name, but to bear the name of Christ in the way that we go about making peace with those who are around us who only want to be at war. You see, here's the lesson. God's children reflect God's character and there is a dignity that comes inherently with that. And it is so very important that we understand this because the reason that we seek to make peace is so that we can amplify the message of the gospel rather than getting into its way. Because when you begin to repay men evil for evil, you might fit in with them, but you end up masking the glory of the gospel. When you repay evil with peace, you demonstrate a distinct identity that is reflective of your Father who is in heaven. We are to be people of peace, bearing a message of peace from a heart that is at peace. This is what a peacemaker looks like. The second question that we have to practically ask as we seek to fulfill the requirement that Jesus gives us here in this verse is very simple. Okay, I know what it looks like. What does a peacemaker do? Well, you might be shocked by this answer. He makes peace. Right? That's what happens. We ask the question, okay, well, with who? Well, go back to the verse. What does the verse say? Blessed are the peacemakers. It's a state of being. It's not a particular relationship. It doesn't say, blessed are you and you make peace with those who are lovely. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite down at the end of chapter 5. He says in verse 45, well, in verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And my daughter would add, don't hit them with a bat. But he goes on and he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? Don't even the Gentiles do this? What's he saying there? He's taking the regulator off of the command. He's not saying be peacemakers with those who are lovely. Be peacemakers with those with whom it's easy to have peace. Be peacemakers with your family or just your family. What's he saying? By not confining the command to a particular group of people, he's saying be peacemakers with everyone. That's what he's saying here, and this is what peacemakers do. It's on purpose that he doesn't have a target destination audience here in this verse. We are to be people who make peace with everyone. So if we really want to go from preaching to meddling, let's actually look at some different groups of people that we can make peace with. And we'll, we'll start close and work our way all the way out to the edges of the spectrum. Okay, let's start with your marriage. right? 1 Peter 3.7 We're told in that passage, men, live with your wives in an understanding way. And a couple verses before, we're told in the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands. In that kind of a relationship of mutual submission, there, there is no hint whatsoever that warfare, hostility, manipulation, or anger has any place. You see, the Christian home is to be a place where peace reigns. Blessed are the peacemakers, and it starts in the most intimate of our relationships. Spouses have an obligation to work at demonstrating the peace of God towards one another. You expand it out one more circle. You talk about your family. Ephesians 6.1, children are commanded, obey your parents. And then the command is flipped on its head. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Again, right here in the home. The parents have the responsibility to work at producing peace that reflects the peace of God, because the peace of God is supposed to reign supreme in the homes of those who claim his name and say, we are meant to look like him. In the church, Philippians 4.2, we're told, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, And then Paul fast-forwards two chapters, and he says, I urge, he calls them out by name, which I'm glad I'm not these women, but here's what he says, I urge you, Odea and Syntyche, to live in peace in the Lord. See, the peace of God is to be present amongst not just the relationships in our home, but the relationships within our church as well in this broader community. And this is the reason why Titus tells us to, to cast factious men out of the church. Because when your desire is to shatter the peace of the church, you're not acting like a member of that church. Our reflex ought to be to bring peace, not war, to one another. Or to bring peace with those who are unsaved. 2 Corinthians 5.20, expanding it out beyond the church. One more circle. It says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, have peace with God. And this, this here, this is the ultimate form of peacemaking because you aren't just making peace with one another as fellow believers who both love God. Now you're expected to make peace with those who are outside of the family of God and hate God and therefore hate you. This kicks it up a notch. Matthew 5.44 goes even further than just the unsaved people because there are unsaved people who who don't act in a way that is hateful towards us all the time. But in case we're missing the point, Matthew 5.44 says this. Jesus says in verse, well, 43 I guess, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the maximum of the day. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That just kicked it up to a whole different notch. And in case we've missed any particular categories of specific interactions that you have with people around you, Romans 12, 18 widens the scope as far as it could possibly go to pretty much the whole world. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And that just about covers it, right? So what does a peacemaker do? He makes peace with everyone. Thereby reflecting the nature of God who has first made peace with you. You say to yourself, but don't you know that they're ugly and nasty? Jesus' answer here is that that doesn't matter because so were you when God brought his peace to you remember while we were yet sinners and so we offer peace to those who have been offended to those who actively seek to reject us and as we'll see in the next two beatitudes to those who actively seek to persecute oppose and abuse us saying all manner of evil things against us why Because the same peace that has already been granted to us is in a way that surpasses all of our understanding, and we want those individuals and everyone around us to experience the same kind of behavior from us. So here's Jesus' bottom line. It doesn't matter if the world rejects you, because you know what peace looks like. Because you have an identity as a child of God, you now have the obligation, the requirement, the responsibility to be a peacemaker. The cost of discipleship is the world's rejection. The benefit is God's acceptance. The responsibility that resides in the middle is that you now must be a maker of peace like your heavenly Father is as well. So, is it worth it to be rejected by the world to spend your life seeking to make peace, knowing that you'll be met with repeated failure. Peace won't happen here because we live in a fallen world with sinful natures. But it absolutely is necessary. Because where they reject you, God accepts you as one of His own. And because you now look like Him, you have an obligation to act like Him. And when He looks at you, He no longer sees your unpeaceableness, your ugliness. Rather, He sees the beauty of Christ that made such peace possible in the first place. And now we are able to go and do likewise. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You and praise You for the peace that You have brought to us and made possible, where we were sinners and actively seeking to war against You, raising our fist in Your face, You have brought peace to us. And so now may we be people as well who evidence when we take our faith into public that same peace that we have received as we seek to make peace with those who are around us that seek to oppose us and the message of truth that you have given to us. May our first and foremost inclination be to demonstrate the glory and grace of Christ to everyone with whom we interact despite their attitudes towards us. May this be our heart. May it be our testimony. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.